Hello and welcome to the YGBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I am Mara, second year PhD student from Yale, studying microbiology. And I'm Samantha, a first year Master of Public Health student in the Department of Health Policy. So, Samantha, what do you have for us today? Okay, well, today we are going to be looking at several studies from how recent wildfires can have a long-distance impact on health to the connection between insomnia and developing a cardiovascular condition at a young age. Oh, this is exciting. We have a lot of good studies this week. Yeah, let's get started. Okay, Mara, tell me, why are we talking about Canadian wildfires again? There's a new research by an expert from Yale School of Public Health that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it reveals that those wildfires that made it all the way to New York may have had a lot of negative impacts on our health. All right, so what was the research strategy? The setup for the study was the following. Researchers took several days during which there was a substantial spike in PM2.5 in the air over the New York City during the period when the smoke from Canadian wildfires were actually active, and then measured the emergency room visits for asthma-related symptoms. What were the findings? They found out that emergency room visit for asthma-related symptoms surged to 261 per day all across the city, compared to an average of about 182 visits per day during the reference periods, which would be before and after the smoke event. They also found out that the smoke wave impacted all boroughs of New York City and all of the age groups as well. However, the data revealed that individuals between the ages of 18 and 64 were the most likely to visit the emergency department for asthma-related conditions. You mentioned they measured the PM2.5 particles. But what are those PM2.5 particles and why are they dangerous? So, PM2.5s are those tiny airborne particles with a diameter of 2.5 micrometers or smaller. That's what they're called, PM2.5. And they're a type of air pollution that consists usually of very fine dust, dirt, and smoke. Um, those particles are smaller than with of human hair and can remain suspended in the air for extended periods of time, which is exactly one of the reasons why they're considered so dangerous. Additionally, the small size of PM2.5 particles allows them to be inhaled deeply into the lungs and even enter the bloodstream. And you can imagine what kind of impact it can have on a human body, especially the groups of high risk for certain diseases. That's super interesting. So what are the practical uh, implications of this? I think the best way to say it is how Kai Chen, the assistant professor of epidemiology and the author of this research said that people should take welfare-induced air quality alerts seriously, definitely more seriously than they do now. And treating those the way they do other extreme events, make adjustments to your daily routines, things like that. Because those smoke waves can actually have deadly impacts on your health. Thanks for sharing, that was great information for everyone to know. All right, now let's switch it up a little bit and talk about new research on breast cancer. Um, Samantha, can you talk a little bit more about who conducted this study and what was their goal? Right, so this study was conducted by a team of scientists from Yale and Cornell, led by Drs. Corey O'Hearn and Dr. Valerie Horsley. And the goal of these teams is to really have a better understanding of breast cancer. And more specifically, they want to define the physical properties of adipose tissue, which is our body fat tissue. And they want to look at those properties in people with obesity and how they might contribute to enhanced tumor invasion during breast cancer. And this group of scientists is supported by a $2 million grant 
from the National Institutes of Health. That's exciting. Um, so what did they find in their study? So they ended up finding that obesity advances the progression of breast cancer. So before you jump into explaining this link, can you give us a little bit of an overview of how breast cancer works? Right, so basically the way it's explained is that most breast cancers start at the epithelial lining of the milk duct and then progresses out of the adipose tissue. And so how deadly a cancer is can be predicted by, first of all, how many cancer cells reach the adipose tissue and whether the cancer cells reach the blood vessels in the adipose tissue. And so if the cancer gets the chance to metastasize um, through the blood vessel, then that can be really bad for the diagnosis. I see. So how is this process connected to obesity? So for these research teams, they really focused on studying how um, obesity alters the physical properties of adipose tissue and can affect the cancer cell invasion. So in terms of the adipose tissue, it surrounds the mammary ducts and is able to grow and shrink. And this, these adipocytes are generally at least 10 times larger than cancer cells, but obesity, obesity can lead them to grow even larger. And so basically what Dr. O'Hearn says is that if adipocytes swell and pack tightly during obesity, it would seem that cancer cells would not be able to move through the densely packed adipose tissue. However, in mouse models with high obesity, they're seeing that given the cancer cell and adipocyte interaction, adipocytes are actually losing lipid and shrinking, which is allowing cancer cells to move through the adipose tissue in a process called lipolysis, according to Dr. Horsley. This is vaguely terrifying. Can you talk a little bit more about what is the end goal of this research? Right, so as with every breast cancer research, um, they're really looking for a way to learn more about how we can develop more effective and newer treatments for breast cancer. Well, let's wish them luck and let's see where this research goes. Yes, good luck. Okay, Mara, I hear that this next study we're going to be talking about is very cool and it looks into the connection between the stress hormone, cortisol, and memory formation. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, that's right. So our third story today comes from Yale professor Elizabeth Goldfarb in the Department of Psychiatry. And her research focuses on how we form memories of past experiences and how does stress influence this process. So her recent study published in Journal of Neuroscience investigates how cortisol, the stress hormone, impacts memory formation. And a little background. So previous research suggested that A, stress can enhance episodic memory formation, and B, stress and the stress-related hormone cortisol can negatively affect the hippocampus, a brain region responsible for episodic memory encoding. So her team decided to take a closer look at what's going on at the hippocampus using uh, fMRI technology and with the help of 27 volunteers. Great, so what was the research setup? Well, what they did is these individuals were given identical pills that were either placebos or contained cortisol. They then viewed a series of images of objects and connected scenes while being inside the fMRI scanner. The researchers asked them to picture an object and the scene together, so to link them associatively, and then how this imaging made them feel about the situation. 
So the objects that were shown to participants were actually based on some prior research that found out that images, for example, of household objects tended to be neutral in the response they listed than images of alcoholic beverages often create an emotional response. And the next day, participants returned to the lab and the team tested the memory for the objects in pairings. About a week later, they reviewed the experiment again, but the participants were given the other pill. Like, if they received a pill with placebo the first time, now they were given the pill with cortisol. Okay, and what are the research findings? See, the research findings actually supported the idea that cortisol strengthens the episodic memory formation. In the placebo group, participants were far less likely to remember the scene associated with an object that triggered the emotional response. That is because under normal circumstances, our attention is drawn to the object that elicits emotional reactions, rather than to the scene that goes together. However, when the cortisol was introduced, the stronger the emotional response was, the more effectively participants could remember the scene associated with the object. The study also shed light on the role of hippocampus itself, but rather than viewing it as a single entity, the researchers analyzed its different subparts, each with varying connectivity and cortisol receptors, using the high-resolution fMRI. And that also revealed that cortisol promoted increased connectivity with the hippocampus. In the words of Dr. Goldfarb, cortisol is helping the hippocampus communicate internally, and that it has this people's ability to remember emotional experiences. So, this really helps us understand why stress influences our memory and our perception of past events. But the real question is, if I'm always stressed, how come my memory isn't better? I feel like I shouldn't have to study. <laughs> well, that would be a question to ask Dr. Goldfarb and her team. Maybe that would be a new topic of the research. Okay, and last but not least, let's talk about the study linking insomnia and cardiovascular conditions. Samantha, so what do we got? Yeah, so this study was led by Dr. Allison E. Gaffey, a clinical psychologist in cardiovascular medicine. And, okay, so what was the study population first? So the study population was pulled from electronic health records from over 1 million young veterans across 15 years. Okay, and what did they find? So basically what they found was that patients with insomnia were 32% more likely to develop atrial fibrillation compared to patients without insomnia, uh, with analysis already adjusted for confounders. Okay, but before we go further, what exactly is atrial fibrillation? Great question. Um, it's a cardiovascular condition in which affected individuals have an abnormal heart rhythm that can lead to symptoms such as irregular heartbeat, palpitations, and lightheadedness, among other things. I see. And who is usually affected by this condition? So, what's interesting is that this condition usually affects older adults and is diagnosed later in life, but as you can see, our study population which is, you know, from a younger demographic, is already exhibiting this condition. And the research think that insomnia is the main link here? Yeah, that's what they're looking at. Okay, but are there any limitations to this kind of study? So definitely, there are definitely some limitations. Um, one of them being that a relatively small proportion of the study population was women, so that's about 14%, and this really limits the generalizability beyond younger male um, people. Do you think the fact that all the participants of the study are veterans is also somewhat of a limiting factor? You know, I actually don't know the answer to that question right now, but I can totally see that being a possibility. Okay, but 
why is this study relevant and what are practical implications of this study? Yeah, so the importance of sleep has actually been increasingly emphasized by major medical organizations such as the American Heart Association and they really say to pay more attention to the effect of sleep um, on issues of cardio and vascular disease. I see, so it all comes together at this point? Yeah, yeah, and really what they're saying is we need to recognize that sleep disturbances um, at an early age can really have potentially long-term consequences. Well, based on that, all we can recommend to our listeners is to get this night's sleep in and don't stay studying for your finals the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I won't be following that recommendation, <laughs> but it's good to know. <laughs> certainly, certainly. This week actually had a lot of interesting science news, and we weren't even to, able to include everything. For example, there was a really interesting piece on gene therapy for brain diseases, and we'll put a link in the description, of course, for you to read if you're interested. But overall, thanks for being with us this whole time, and we hope that you have a nice October recess if you actually do take it. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. Bye.